going to write anything down that I have to say today, this would be the time to write this down. And it's this, the most essential truth that any Christian can know is that even though you are a sinner, if you are looking to Christ, if you are trusting in him, then there is an all-powerful God and an all-wise God who is willing to exert all of his omnipotence and all of his omniscience in order to care for you. I'll say that again. If you're a Christian, there's an all-powerful God, an all-wise God who is willing to exhort all of his omniscience and all of his omnipotence in order to care for you. Nothing. I mean, absolutely nothing can have a greater impact on your life than, than knowing this truth. Um, and that's what we're going to be seeing in today's passage. One of the things we're going to see. I want to say this as well. The passage we're about to read together is one of the most significant passages in the entire Bible. I mean, it really is. If you examine the scriptures, you will see that the Old Testament prophets were constantly referring to it, and the New Testament writers refer to it as well. And what you see is that people of both the Old and the New Testament were hanging their entire lives on the promise that is contained in the scriptures that we're about to read. All right? So with that in mind, I'm going to ask you to please stand for the reading of God's holy word. It comes from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 29. Listen closely to God's holy word. It says, Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all of his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, well, go and do all, that in John, all that's on your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan and, and said this. He said, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've, but I've been moving around in that, about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word to any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, therefore, thus, now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went. And have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, more importantly, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up for you, uh, raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, 
whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Then King David went in and he sat before the Lord and said, And now, O Lord, you are God and your words are true. And you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue before you forever. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. May God richly bless the reading of his holy word. Amen. (coughs) Heavenly Father, I pray that you'll bless the time that we have together today, that you'll help me to speak clearly, and that we will see how this passage, this word that you gave to Nathan 3,000 years ago applies to us today. Lord, bless us. As you bless David, we ask this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. So what this passage is saying is that there would one day come a, there would come one day come a day when, when the Lord would raise up one of David's descendants to be an even greater leader than, than he. All right? That's basically what's promised in this passage. As I said a moment ago, uh, the passage um was deeply important to both Old Testament prophets and New Testament writers. And people of the Old and New Testament both were hanging their entire lives on the promise of this passage, the promise of a coming Messiah. And that's why in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, he begins his very gospel with assuring his readers that Jesus actually is a descendant of King David. That's why the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream in, in, in chapter 1, verse 20. Assuring uh, and addressed, he addressed Joseph as Joseph, son of uh, Joseph, son of, of David. And, and now Joseph wasn't Jesus' actual father, but he was his legal or legal father at the time. All right, that's why Luke begins his gospel in chapter one, verse thirty, with 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 God's angelic visit, an angelic messenger telling Mary. Remember what what he told Mary? He said, "Mary, don't be afraid, for you have found favor with God." And then he went on to say, listen, you're going to give birth to a son. And he goes on then to say, and the Lord is going to give him the throne of his father, David. So in other words, he's the one who God said would reign forever, that his kingdom would never end. This is your son. This is is who Jesus is. And then Luke also tells us that when the angelic angels appeared to the shepherds in chapter 2, Uh, Verse 10 and 11, remember what they said? They said, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy. For today in the city of David, a Savior has been born to you. Now they knew that this David had been born in Bethlehem. They knew that the prophecies had talked about the Savior, the Messiah, the, the coming descendant of David would be born in Bethlehem. And so that's where they went to see him that night. Now Joseph and, and, and Mary and the shepherds, they understood that the promise that was given to David, they understood that the promise that is contained in the passage that we just read together was given not just to David, but it was given to David and his descendants, to David and, 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 to, it, and to them as well, to all those who would look to him. Um, and they also understood that this promise was given for their benefit. And what I want you to see today is that the promise is also given to us. It is given to anyone who would turn to the Lord in faith, anyone who would turn to the Lord and trust him. 
But in order to really appreciate, in order to really appreciate this passage, um, to understand this promise, um, we got to go back and we've got to look at the nature of this promise um, that was made to David. The setting is this. David had finally defeated the Philistines. Remember I said we've been doing this sermon series, and up until now it's just been very chaotic. David's been in battle. David's been at war. He's been chased. He's running for Saul, running for his life constantly. He finally uh, settles the nation, but it's been a lot of conflict. and a very difficult time to get there, but he has finally defeated the Philistines. He's established peace in the region. He has opened the lines of international trade, so he has ushered in a time of great prosperity. Um, he's united the 12 tribes into one nation for the first time. They, they're truly unified. He's established Jerusalem as the capital city. And not only that, you may remember when we left off just before Christmas, David ushered in the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. In other words, the Ark of the Covenant represented the presence of God. So so he made the presence of God, the, very, the, the Ark, the center of Israel's collective identity. In other words, David did, he accomplished what every king, whatever governmental leader ever wanted to accomplish, all right? So now we get to our passage, and at the very beginning of our passage, in the first three verses, we see that David's living in this palace that has been built. He's living in this beautiful new palace, and he decides, you know what, it's just not right. It is not right that I'm living in this beautiful palace, and the Ark of uh, uh, the Covenant, the, the, God's throne, is sitting in this old ratty tent that we've been hauling around for, for, for decades and centuries. And so he calls Nathan, his pastor, and he says, listen, I want to do something great for God. I, I want to lead the nation of Israel in building a house, in, in building a temple for the Lord. And, and it seems like a great idea to Nathan. And Nathan says, all right, go for it. But that night, the Lord comes to Nathan with a message for David, and the answer is no. And God says to him in verse 6, he says, listen, I haven't lived in, in, in a house since I brought my people out of Egypt. In verse 7, he says, I've been moving around in that old tent for hundreds of years, and not once have I ever asked anyone to build me something different. Now, there's going to come a time when they will build a temple, but God says, this is not that time, and David, you're not the one who's going to do it. But why not? I mean, it seems like the perfect time. The nation's at peace. The nation's united. Things are going well. The infrastructure's there. And remember, this is a time of great prosperity. The, econ the economy's good. The money's there. The resources are available. But God's answer is no. And here's why. If God allows them to enter into this massive building project, if God allows them to build a temple for him, everybody is going to be caught up in what they are doing for God rather than what God is doing, has done, or must do for them. It'll be a distraction. Now, in refusing to, to let David build this temple, God is, God's communicating something incredibly significant for us. In verses 8 through 11, God says, now listen, David, Verse 8, he says, he reminds him, listen, I'm the one who took you for the pasture. I'm, I'm the one who took you from, from looking over those nasty old sheep and, and made you the prince over my people. I'm the one who did that. In verse 9, he says, I have been with you and I've provided for you and I've protected you wherever you have gone. 
I'm the one who has brought you, brought your enemies into submission. I'm the one who made your name great. And you know what? I'm, I'm the one who's going to make it even greater. It's important to remember that the Lord is the one who raised David up so that he might be a blessing to God's people. And the Lord goes on to say here, he says, listen, I've done some pretty great things, but I'm going to keep on doing these things for you. But even more importantly, in the last half of verse, verse 11, he said, just as I've done all these other things, I'm going to do something even greater. I'm going to build you a house. But you're not going to build me a house. You are not going to build me a house. And what makes this so significant is that it was so absolutely unique. Uh, it, this was virtually unheard of in the ancient Near East. What makes this so significant is that it was the exact opposite of how other gods, quote-unquote gods, and, and other kings interacted with one another. In the ancient Near East, whenever a king established dominance and rule and success, the very first thing they would do would be build a house or a a temple for their for their gods or their god. For example, and and, and, and they built the temple, and, the, and then the priest would come out with a, with an oracle, a, a declaration. And for example, Thutmose the Third was one of the most successful pharaohs of, of Egypt, and when he built a temple for the god Amon Re, the the priests of that temple came out and they publicly declaimed. Listen to this. It says, Thutmose III, since you have built my dwelling place and you have outstripped all other kings in building my monument, I will establish your throne until distant days. And the history books are filled with examples like this. But do you see what Thutmose did? Like other kings, he built a temple with the expectation that it is God or the gods would be pleased with him and then further solidify his power and his, his reign. It's what all the kings did. And now David is about to do the very same thing. But God says, no, absolutely not. Now, if, if you're visiting with us today, and, and if you sort of think that you know, all religions... Are alike. I mean, they all have the same theme and the same purpose. What God is demonstrating here is that that's not true. What, what He's demonstrating here is that all religions are—they're are, not the same. Uh, what God's doing here is He's making an important and an undeniable statement to David, to the, the nation of Israel, to to the nations that surrounded them, to the world, and even to you and me, three thousand years later. And what he's saying is this. He's saying, listen, I am not like other gods. I am completely different than what most people think. Every, every other religion in the world works on the principle that you do something for God and then God will do something for you. And the more you do for God, the more that God will do for you. But again, God says, I'm not like that. It's not about what you can do for me, but rather it is about what I do for you. And because I'm a God of sheer grace, it's about it's actually about what I must do for you. Now, that's the message that's being sent, and that's the very first thing that I want you to see today. Here's something else that I want 
you to see that I think is essential for you to understand. While David is talking about a house of cedar and gold, God's talking about building for David a dynasty. Look at me with what he says to David in verses 12 through 14. God said to David, he said, listen, when your days are fulfilled, when you like, in other words, after you're dead, after you're gone, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. He's the one who shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son. <clears throat> listen, I, I know that I think everybody in here is, is, we're Americans. So genealogies and lineages and dynasties, they're just not that important to us. They're not. I was at a party Friday evening and, and some of us were there and we, we started talking about our genealogical history. And those who were involved in the conversation each kind of shared just a little bit about, you know, what their genealogical history was. But can you imagine if, if one of the people begin to dominate the conversation and begin talking about, in detail, their genealogical history? Here's what would happen. The rest of us would try at the very best to politely act like we're interested, but the reality is we don't care. We don't care. It's not important to us. But here's the thing. God did make a promise to David that the coming Messiah would be a descendant of his. That, that, that the coming Messiah would descend from his royal line. And even if dynasties and genealogies are not important to us, they were to Mary, they were to Joseph, they were to the shepherds, they were to people of the ancient Near East. And Mary and Joseph and the shepherds, along with God's people, in the first century, were familiar with the promise that was recorded in today's passage. Again, they understood that the Messiah would be a descendant of David's, and they anxiously awaited his coming because they understood that, that his coming would be for their benefit. And, and therefore, as I said earlier, they based their entire lives on this promise. See, they understood that just as God used David to usher in the presence of God, to unite and to bring blessing to God's people, to defeat their enemies. He understood that God used David to defeat their enemies, to establish this incredible time of peace and prosperity. They understood that this future descendant, the Messiah, the Christ, would do it again, but on a far greater scale. And that's what they longed for. That's what they hoped for. And Matthew and Luke and the other gospel writers they want the readers to know that Jesus is that descendant. He is the one who has built a house for the Lord. He is the one who will reign forever. It is his kingdom that will never end. He's established the church. I began, that's kind of the second thing that I wanted us to understand. And I begin this sermon today by saying that the most essential truth that any Christian can know is that even though you're a sinner, there is an all-powerful, all-wise God who's willing to exert his omniscience and his omnipotence and his omniscience and his omnipotence in order to care for you. 
But what I want you to understand is that this is not some general principle that is applied to everyone. It's not. This is true only for those who have been reconciled to God through the atoning sacrifice of God's one and only Son. Just, just a few moments ago, we sing how great thou art. We sing, then on the cross, my burden, gladly bearing. He gladly bore my, my burden. He bled and died to take away my sin. That's what we're singing about. That he has reconciled us to God the Father. He has brought us the ultimate peace that we need. And I was thinking about this. If the Lord gave us, and Scripture tells us this, if the Lord gave us his only son, what else will he not give? What else would he withhold from us? Now, I have a confession to make to you. For some of you, it's not a surprise. I, I really struggle to believe this. In my own personal life, I really struggle to believe that God is truly on my side. My wife and my daughter can attest to the truth of this. I really struggle to believe that God really is for me. Um, and I believe that this is probably a bigger battle for me than it is for most people, but I don't believe that I'm alone in this. This is something that I have to constantly repent of. It's something that we, we should all be repenting of. Wow. Here's something I want us to think about today. When God established this covenant with David, he, he placed upon himself what you might call a self-imposed job description. When he established this covenant with David, he, he made a promise and he bound himself to this promise by his own word that he will withhold no good thing from those who are willing to follow, to wait for, to look to, and to trust in Him. That's a promise. And living with this understanding that, that God is sovereign and that He works out everything for the good of those He loves, for those who are called according to His purpose, and that He does so out of, out of sheer grace, it has to, by necessity, if we're believing it, have a profound impact on the way we live. It has to, by necessity, affect every aspect of our lives. You see, see what that does is is it gives us a deep emotional assurance that even though you're a sinner, God's attention is focused on you with boundless mercy. A minute ago we sang, Sing, O oh, sing through the raging storm. You're still my rock and my salvation. Believing this is what gives us the ability to sing that song in our own private time with confidence. You know, when life is hard, 
when the money you have in the bank is not enough to cover the bills, when your life doesn't seem to be playing out the way that you hoped it would, when the future that you once hoped for now seems like a, a crazy fantasy, when you find yourself disappointed in what was once a close family or close friend, you're able to join in what we sang earlier, Father, not my will, but yours be done. You're able to rest in, in these difficult times. You're able to rest in the fact that God has imposed upon himself a job description that includes the responsibility of caring for you. The responsibility of seeing that everything in your life turns out for your ultimate good and for his glory. Believing this is what keeps, keeps you from becoming consumed by envy or anger or self-pity, depression, sorrow, or disappointment. Believing this assures you that, that every head cold Every flu bug, every illness, every leaky roof, every broken relationship, every dental emergency, every disappointment, um, every failure you might have will in the end be used for your eternal good and his glory. And it assures us that there's no reason for us to be afraid of what might come in 2024. Or after that. So those are the things I wanted us to hear. I want to end with this. We began with David wanting to build a house for the Lord. With David wanting to do something great for God. <clears throat> but God says no. It's not about what you do, but rather it's about what I must do for you. And so what did David do? We know he did exactly what God told him to do. Nothing. He did nothing. I mean, David did absolutely nothing. I like what Eugene Peterson wrote in his commentary, Leap Over the Wall. I'll end with this. He writes this. He says, this may be the single most critical act that David ever did. The action that put him out of action. More critical than killing Goliath, more critical than honoring Saul, his enemy, as God's anointed, more critical than bringing the ark into Jerusalem, more critical because what David does now does in response to Nathan's pastoral and prophetic counsel will either qualify or disqualify him from kingwork, for which he has been anointed, trained, preserved, and empowered. What we don't do for God is often far more critical than what we in fact do. Most Christians are characteristically much afraid of doing too little for God, let alone nothing. But there are moments far more frequent than we suppose when doing nothing is precisely the gospel thing. My hope as we go forward today that we would be stronger, that we'd be reminded through the worship, through the reading of his word, through the preaching of his word, that he is for us, that he is on our side. We don't have to be afraid. Live with confidence, and he can receive glory. Amen? Amen.
Heavenly Father, I, I know that I'm not alone. I am filled with a room full of people who need to repent for our lack of faith, for our lack of trust, for our lack of willingness to be still and do nothing. Well, this is not a, a, a license for slothfulness, Lord. We are, are reminded that we're to go about our ministries and, and our responsibilities with the understanding that you are ultimately in charge, that you are in control. That there is no roadblock, there is no difficulty, there is no um, impediment that that is out, outside your control. And so, Lord, may we be a people who smile and find glory in difficult times. May we be a people who who laugh and love and give you glory. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. If you're struggling with having faith and trusting in the Lord, let me encourage you to just confess that to somebody today. Uh, let me encourage you to, to ask somebody to pray for you. I'll bet you a dollar to a donut that if you will walk up to Debbie Calli or Patty Young or Robin Young or, or, or Ken, Ken Stolven here and just confess that or Lori Spend time confessing that to somebody and just ask them to pray for you. It doesn't have to be a long, drawn-out, embarrassing prayer. But just let's be a people who confess this and lift one another up in prayer before the Lord. Amen? All right. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord, as we've been talking about, be one who makes his face shine upon you, both now and forevermore. Amen? Amen. Amen.